I'm Douglas Brush, and you're listening to Cybersecurity Interviews. Cybersecurity Interviews is the weekly podcast dedicated to digging into the minds of the influencers, thought leaders, and individuals who shape the cybersecurity industry. I discover what motivates them, explore their journey in cybersecurity, and discuss where they think the industry is going. The show lets listeners learn from the experts' stories and hear their opinions on what works and doesn't in cybersecurity. Hello and welcome to episode 20 of Cybersecurity Interviews. In this episode, I'm speaking with Jad Saliba. Jad is the founder and CTO of Magnet Forensics, a leading digital forensics company. Jad guides the organization to create products that meet the needs of customers from law enforcement, consultancies, or the corporate world. A former digital forensics investigator with a background in computer science, Jad can uniquely identify issues faced by forensic professionals and apply new ways of using technology to solve these problems. Prior to starting Magnet Forensics, Jad spent seven years with the Waterloo Regional Police Service. While with the police department, Jad was responsible for recovering internet evidence from computers to support the force's investigations. He then developed Internet Evidence Finder, which quickly became one of the most popular digital forensic tools for law enforcement and commercial practitioners. Jad is a recognized digital forensic speaker at industry events including CEIC, Crimes Against Children's Conference, Euroforensics, F3, HTCIA, SANS, and many more. Jad holds a diploma in computer science and network security from Mohawk College. In this episode, we discuss the Operation Underground Railroad Sting, being a police officer versus running a business, the most important skill an investigator needs, his favorite tool outside of his own, cloud forensics, and so much more. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Thanks for listening. Chad, thanks for joining me on Cybersecurity Interviews. How are you today? I'm great, Douglas. Uh, thanks for having me on the show and uh, um, glad to be here today. Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, and before we kind of get into a little the, the nitty gritty, I was obviously doing some research on you and found actually a really interesting story in a blog post you wrote a couple years ago on the Operation Underground Railroad Sting. Can you kind of walk me through that story? I found it really very interesting and a great way to start the show. Yeah, sure. Uh, I'd be happy to. Um, so the, the organization's called Operation Underground Railroad. Um, I'm actually wearing one of their t-shirts right now. Um, and... Uh, they uh, it started uh, by a, a special agent from uh, Department of Homeland Security who was dealing with international cases, but uh, not not being able to investigate um, certain human trafficking cases that uh, that he was coming across and uh, wanted to to uh, to do more in that area. So he uh, he left left his full time full-time job with uh, DHS and uh, started this nonprofit where uh, where they go and uh, create investigations or assist the police with investigations in uh, in different countries where this uh, where, the, where the human trafficking is occurring and uh, they do undercover operations um, uh, stings and and things like that um, and then and they work closely with law enforcement there to uh, to you know rescue children from uh, from those situations um, and also uh, you know get, bring the uh, the pimps and the, the other people involved uh, to justice so um, 
I just kind of happened upon uh, the organization uh, a few years ago, and I just thought this was great. I, I really loved the fact that they were kind of boots on the ground, making a difference in this area, and uh, certainly other types of uh, nonprofits that are that are working in this area are are doing some great things as well. But just being a former former police officer, um, I really like the idea of you know being able to do something. So so I reached out and uh, just said, hey, you know, we'd would love to be able to help um, you if there's anything we can do. And this is what what we create with our software. And maybe there's a way we can work together. And um, uh, I was talking to Tim Ballard, who's the uh, uh, the founder, and he said, you know what, just come on down and uh, uh, join us for an operation, uh, see what we do and, and help us out. So uh, a few months later, jumped on a plane uh, down to the Dominican Republic and uh, joined their team for, for an operation. They were setting up a sting to, uh, um, uh, they, they, had, they had some information in a certain area that uh, younger younger children were being uh, trafficked and, and uh uh, kind of sold to tourists to uh, who were there for for that purpose, and uh, so they had done some uh, work the, the previous months uh, um, with some undercover folks that work with them, uh, creating the 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 sting and, and setting up the, the the meeting. And the story was that um, we would be tourists uh, in the country there to uh, essentially abuse children. Um, so they they found a number of. Uh, people or pimps that that were um, yeah, had access to children and and were willing to uh, to sell them to us, and uh, so they they rented a house, made it look like we were there for a party, um, set up a, a number of uh, um, microphones in different areas and video um, to record the the, the whole um, the the whole scenario, and uh, and then they they brought. Uh, brought the children in. They ended up getting so many children um, that they had to rent a bus, a school bus, to, to bring them all in. I, I can't remember now how many there were. Um, and that that's the, I think that's the one part of the whole, uh, the whole trip that really stood out for me. So we were in the house uh, waiting for these children to arrive with the, with the pimps. And, uh, you know, you're supposed to be acting like uh, these, these tourists that are there for, uh, you know, to, uh, to essentially abuse these children, um, and as they walked in through the house, uh, just the looks in their faces, uh, the looks in their eyes as they walked past you, um, I, I don't think that'll ever ever leave me. Um, that was that was pretty impactful, and uh, you just your heart goes out to to all those uh, the kids that who who knows how many times they'd already been through a situation like that, and obviously this was a fake situation but uh they didn't know that at that point um so then they then they brought in the pimps and they're uh negotiating um you know the what they were going to pay for for different things and uh it was all in spanish so unfortunately i couldn't uh, couldn't understand what's going on there but uh, i got the gist of it as they're counting out uh, uh um american uh money on the table um and then, uh, so as I said, they worked closely with the police. So the police were all, you know, fully briefed on this and working in cooperation with Operation Underground Railroad. And uh, the plan was once they had the uh, 
the information from the from the pimps that they needed to prosecute them, then they would come in and uh, arrest everyone, including all of us, to to make it uh, you know continue to appear real and and to protect the identities of folks that were going to be continued um, have continued involvement in these uh, investigations. So they came in, arrested us all um, when the time was right, and and then they had another organization there to uh, to, to help all the the kids and and to kind of deal with the aftercare um, and ensuring that they didn't go back to uh, abusive situations. So it was quite the experience, uh, probably uh, something that I, I may not get to experience again. Um, and it was great to be part of it. Um, and, we, you know, we, we kind of left it uh, with them. We've, we've supported them through some fundraisers and uh, also through uh, donating some of our software. Um, and they're, they're involved in training law enforcement in other countries um, on using digital forensic software to, to assist them beyond the undercover work they do, but also, you know, if the pimps have cell phones on them, uh, what can you get off those phones to, to you know, further the, uh, the investigation, maybe gather some additional evidence of other things that they were involved in or other people that are involved in, in what they're, they're doing there. Um, so that's something that we've been been pretty proud to be able to help them through. Um, and, and it's just a great group of people that, uh, that we've worked with. So, that's kind of a, hopefully I didn't uh, uh, drone on too long there. No, on that, no, it's, it's always interesting. You know, I, I think, um, you know, at least for me and a lot of the work that I've done, and I've mostly been on the civil side of, of forensics and security, but there's there's obviously the human element that goes back to it. And I think right. ultimately, I think in from what I read in, in the blog post, there was about 26 young girls were rescued, eight criminals were arrested. So, you know, it's kind yeah. of see where you, you can make that impact. Uh, but, you know, Obviously, from reading that story and, and kind of following other aspects of your career, you seem to be still be kind of quite passionate about cybersecurity and forensics. What makes you so uh, drawn to it and so passionate about the industry? I think um, it, it was my time in policing when I um, when I got into the the high tech crime unit, um, started doing some different cases and being involved in the child exploitation cases, especially, but all sorts of other. Um, uh, important cases that uh, that it really kind of realized, how, you know, what what was going on there, and and um, some of the things that that uh, that were happening in our community. And uh, a friend of mine that uh, that I was um, hired into uh, the police force with, he's now working in the human trafficking unit. And uh, I saw him speak once uh, in a presentation, and he he made the comment that it's really easy to get passionate about this stuff quickly. And uh, I think that kind of sums it up. You know, when, once you're seeing what's um, what's happening to children or other victims, you, you just want you just want to make a difference in that area. And if you if you have the skills, uh, you know, on the forensic side or the the cybersecurity side to, to help in that area, I think that's just a great thing because there's so much help needed um, to either do the work itself or or provide tools that can assist the people that are that are doing the work. And that's that's kind of what uh, um, kind of keeps me passionate about it and keeps our entire team here at Magnet passionate about it. We, uh, we have a few people that are, that are ex law enforcement or, um, ex, uh, digital forensic examiners from, from the corporate world. And, uh, and then the rest are uh, kind of don't have experience there, but the great thing that, that I think is that everyone's here for the same purpose and the same mission. We, we all want to help people, uh, that are, that are 
conducting these investigations, dealing with this really difficult material and helping uh, victims around the world. And, uh, and whether it's, you know, certainly, certainly coming from law enforcement, that's, that's kind of where my heart is. But anyone that's doing an investigation, we really, we're really passionate about helping people get to the truth and, and enabling them through our software to, uh, to make a difference in, in wherever they're working. Gotcha. And, you know, you kind of mentioned that you had, and I, I know, but you've had a history in law enforcement. Were you more, were you law enforcement first and then technical or technical, then law enforcement? Um, technical and then law enforcement. So I, uh, through my teenage years, um, I was just always interested in computers and programming and figuring out how to, how to do different things. Um, you know, uh, uh, I was learning a lot about boot sectors and partition tables, um, in my late teens, not, not something that probably a lot of teenagers were, uh, were doing, but, um, I just liked figuring out how all that stuff worked. Um, but I also, at the same time, always had an interest in, in law enforcement or, or some sort of public safety work and, uh, kind of decided that that's, that's the direction I, I wanted to go, um, and uh, and I, I really loved being able to combine the experience that I had working as a police officer with the the technical background that I had once uh, once the time came uh, to combine those two things. And at, at some point while you were in law enforcement, you started developing software for investigations. What what kind of drove you to start doing that? Um, it was really just uh, out of out of personal need. Um, detectives were coming to us asking us to recover things uh, like Facebook chat, which was uh, you know gaining popularity. Uh, this is back in two thousand nine, and uh, we just didn't have tools that that could recover that kind of uh, that kind of information. Um, we didn't even realize uh, or know if if it was left behind on the computer. You know, it's just it was just in the browser at the time, uh, and uh, you know we thought maybe it's just maybe just uh, it's kind of in memory and it goes away once you close the browser. Um, so one day I just went home and again, you know, being a curious uh, person like most most of us are in this field, um, I uh, started doing some research and uh, trying to see you know if anything does get left behind. And once I found that it does, I also found that it was in a format that, that I could search for. Um, so I kind of put my uh, software development hat back on and uh, started building a tool that would just kind of simply look for those messages through uh, through a hard drive um, and then put them into uh, to, uh, just a CSV file at the time. Um, and uh, it kind of, kind of went from there. I, I it was just something I was doing in my my free time, my personal time, and I decided to just put it out there for free uh, and help others that were uh, that were doing the same kind of work. I just wanted to enable them as well, and uh, it just started. Uh, a lot of people started downloading it. A few people started blogging about it, which really helped uh, get the word out, and uh, um, just lots of feedback uh, came came in on you know additional. Uh, types of artifacts or apps that they wanted uh, supported or features and things like that. And so that just kind of carried on for, uh, for about a couple of years. And uh, it got to the point where it was, it was really busy um, doing that in evenings and weekends. And I also saw that I could make a bigger impact if I went full time. Um, and also if I was able to bring on a team that could uh, kind of assist and, and um, 
you know further the software. Uh, I'm a I'm a decent software developer, but I'm not I'm by far uh, not the best out there. And I knew that uh, if I got some help from uh, folks that were really really good at that, I could uh, we could really take it uh, uh, to the next level. So um, I met my business partner Adam Belcher uh, in 2011. We had the same accountant, and he was uh, he was kind of helping me through a few things there, and said, "Hey, you should really talk to." Uh, uh, talk to this this guy Adam. Um, he was at RIM or BlackBerry at the time. Uh, had a lot of the sales uh, and marketing experience, which I knew that I needed if I was going to go full time with this. So uh, we we met over the summer and in the uh, the fall of 2011, decided to leave our jobs and, and go full time uh, with the with the business. And uh, um, he he also really was inspired by uh, the you know the the cases that we were being involved in through the software and the impact it was making around the world. And, and he wanted to, to, to be involved in that and, and help, uh, you know, help make a bigger impact by bringing more people onto the team and, and doing more, more with the software. Um, so we started hiring folks in 2012 and, uh, now we're, we're about, uh, 130, 135 employees. Um, we've got offices in the U S and Singapore. Uh, we've got folks in the UK and Mexico as well. Uh, most, most of our employees are here in Waterloo, uh, Ontario. Um, and, uh, we're in over 3,500 agencies now, um, over 93 countries. So it's been, it's been a, a pretty wild five years, but uh, it's been really great, and uh, it's uh, it's just like you said, it's uh, the passion is definitely still there to to continue to help folks uh, uh, with the the investigations that they're doing. Gotcha. And kind of going back to that moment where you decided to kind of hang up the badge and the gun, was that kind of a hard decision to make to step away from law enforcement to be an entrepreneur? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, when I become a police officer, I kind of thought that this was this was going to be my career for for until I retire and uh, uh, never really um, envision anything else so it was it was a it was a tough decision um, and uh, people ask me if I if I miss it I, I certainly do uh, miss some parts of it and you, you know you miss the people and, and the the investigations but um, the, the great thing is that I feel like I'm still involved in, in, in a lot of ways and we work closely with law enforcement on, on the software um, and still feel like I'm making an impact uh, through, through uh, developing that software. So um, it was a tough decision to leave, but I'm, uh, you know, I think it was the right thing to do and, and that we've been able to do a lot of really good things um, by, uh, by going full time with it. Yeah. And, and now that you're the CTO and, and we're in kind of a C-suite title, do you, are, are you still involved with, you know, working on code? Is there, you know, kind of digging into the trenches, uh, something you still get to do? Um, a little bit. The, uh, the team, uh, gets a little nervous when I, when I start coding again, or, uh, they try to, they try to keep me away from the code now. Um, but I do get to stay involved here and there with, uh, some of the, the smaller tools or just assisting with, uh, with certain things here and there. But, but really we have a, just such a talented development team now that, uh, you know, I've, I've been able to, to quickly see early on that just, you know, uh, where, where I can best, uh, serve them and serve our customers is just um, by kind of directing the the development team, you know, on on how we need to build the software, what and how it needs to operate, um, what we need to go after, which features we need to build in, and uh, just let them let them build it, and uh, they they just do a great job with that. 
Yeah, now I've certainly been a kind of a long time user since the uh, the early earlier days myself, probably mm-hmm. going back two thousand eight and nine. Yeah, and kind of seen it more from from Jad Software to Magnet Forensics. But I was just curious, what why the name Magnet Forensics? Um, we uh, we looked at it when uh, when it was Jad Software still in twenty twelve. We changed the name in in August of twenty twelve. Um, I, I was kind of looking at, at it as it's not just me anymore. Um, it's, it's a, it's a team of people that are working on this. Uh, Jad software was just really, because I, you know, it was kind of a side project for me. It was just kind of a, a quick name that I picked. Um, and I was starting to go to conferences where I'd have name tags that said Jad and then on the next line, Jad Saliba, and then on the next line, Jad software. And <laughs> I was like, this, <laughs> this has to stop. Um, so I really wanted a, just a, a new name that, that kind of, um, represented uh, you know in a way what we do and 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 that there was a bigger team there um we hired a, a company to kind of help us pick a pick a new name and this was one that they had suggested and it was kind of a visual of of what we're doing if you think of a just a pile of uh, iron filings and you know some other debris there and if you put a magnet over it you're pulling out just the the, the iron uh, filings that are there and, and kind of symbolizing what we're doing with a hard drive or a phone where we're just pulling out the the key bits of information um and pulling that out for you. Um, other people have mentioned um, since then, uh, this wasn't kind of part of the original uh, decision-making, although I'd like to, I, I wish I could claim that it was, but I guess there's this concept around magnets as well as that there's a, they're a bit, there's a bit of magic there uh, of how, how a magnet works. And so they're like, is that kind of why you, why you called the company that? Because what you do is a bit Bit like magic, and uh, I'd love to take uh, I'd love to take credit for that, but that's not really uh, that wasn't part of the decision making. But but we can we can throw that in there too. Sure, go with it. I mean, now <laughs> that everybody's heard the story, they're, they're going to know the truth. But unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but also the the platform itself changed from you know I, IEF or Internet Evidence Finder to be a bit more, and now you have Axiom out there. How did that? How did the storyline kind of morph from just being? internet artifacts to other artifacts as well right yeah that's a great question um we, we've been really focused from the beginning on um listening to customers and and um kind of uh developing the software based on what we're hearing at conferences trade shows uh, customer meetings you know obviously we're innovating and and coming up with our own ideas but um I, i've always appreciated companies that that listen to their customers and uh and kind of take take the lead from them so as we've developed IEF um, you know we started with internet artifacts on computers and people were saying hey we really like what you're doing on the computer side Uh, I'd love it if you could do that for me on a on an image from a mobile device Um, so we started doing that in 2013 um, pulling artifacts from different mobile apps and then uh, people said hey we really like what you're doing um, with with all these different artifacts Um, if I just had documents, uh, some operating system artifacts like event logs, um, USB devices, and so on. Um, I could, I could, you know, pass that case off to an investigator and, and they would just have everything they need to review um, all the all the relevant information from the case. So we, we kind of added some of the non-internet related artifacts uh, in 2014. Um, and it just made sense. We're, we're, we were already going through the hard drive. Um, why not pull out uh, some of these uh, artifacts as well, and, and just make it easy for you know the investigator to review that. Um, and that was that was another thing that was happening was that 
people were starting to um, create portable cases um, from our software and, and sharing that with an investigator um, who had maybe spent you know 80 hours in the investigation talking to people and knew all the intimate details of, of the investigation and the examiner you know even if they got briefed just wouldn't have that level of uh, of detail so they they were uh, the examiners were passing these cases off to the investigators and just wanted to be able to give them a nice package of, of information, um, and uh, and that was helping reduce their backlog as well. So that feedback continued, and 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 it kind of you know another little thing that people were asking for. I mean, it's it's a big thing, but it's you know you're doing all these different artifacts now. If you could just give me access to the file system, uh, the registry, uh, let me do you know a bit more of a manual investigation or examination beyond the artifacts that you, you're built, um, that you have built in, um, then I could do an entire case just in, in your product. And they, they wanted us to do that, and this is what they were telling us, because they really loved how easy to use um, IEF was, and they just liked the approach that we take with taking difficult uh, filters or um, analysis tools and just making them simple for, for examiners to use. And, and experienced examiners seem to like that because they know how hard it is to do manually or uh, uh, through, through other means, and they appreciate the time savings. And the newer examiners really liked uh, our approach because it just it let them get into cases faster and, and be more productive faster. So we looked at IEF and, and the platform that it was built on and decided that if we were going to kind of take this to the next level and, and give them, give uh, users access to the file system, uh, you know, keyword searching across the entire drive, all those kinds of um, traditional forensic tool uh, features, we were going to have to build uh, a new platform to, to be able to support that and, and support some of the things we want to do in the future. So um, we were also looking at the name, Internet Evidence Finder, and, and kind of you know, uh, observing that it it really we'd really outgrown that name with what we were doing the tool even in IEF. So that's when we decided we needed needed a new name uh, and a new platform to uh, to be able to provide the the additional capabilities. So, um, you know, uh, that's that's kind of how how it. Uh, how it came about, and we call Axiom the evolution of IEF because it's it's not necessarily a revolutionary change, but it's 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 an evolution where now you can do um, a few more things with with what I think is a much uh, um, simpler interface even than IEF, and and some improvements that make uh, things like keyword searching and filtering much faster. Um, but it, it's it's just giving you that additional capability that now allows you to do that much more uh, just an hour an hour tool, um, and not to say that we're trying to be the the one tool that does everything. We, we still believe that there's a toolbox approach in forensics, but um, now you can just do that much more in our tools, saving you time. Yeah, definitely. It's funny. It, I I almost when when I work with newer examiners uh, in forensics, I think it's your tool almost makes it unfair to them because they can get to things quicker. And I have to be like the old, the old guy that to say, you don't remember back in the day when I had to manually parse shell bags by hand, you know what a pain in the ass that was. Uh, I don't think they get to appreciate. I still make them go learn how to do that. Just so there's Absolutely. a little bit of a, a wax on wax off, but exactly. you know, it's, it definitely gets, gets to things a little bit quicker. So you don't just, uh, your brain doesn't melt. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think that's really important to understand what your tool's doing and to, 
to understand how it's pulling the artifacts out. Um, we want to make it easy just because you're, you know, you're doing so many cases, but it's, I think it's, it's super important to be able to understand, you know, how that's, how that's working in the background. And I guess, you know, along some of these lines, I would say some of the tools can almost be magical in how it puts out some of the output, but what are some of the biggest misunderstandings that people have about digital forensics? You know, to me, it's always been that people think, oh, it's kind of like this magical uh, art. And I'm saying, well, there's a science behind it too. What, what's some of the observations you have about the industry that people misunderstand? That's a good question. Um, I think sometimes uh, people coming into the industry, um, might oversimplify, you know, what, what we're doing here. And, uh, I know a few of us that when, when I came into the, into the world of forensics, um, and I was, was in some of the initial courses, uh, a lot of people had kind of talked about how they thought there was just going to be this one button that you press and, and, you know, the find all evidence button and, uh, everything just gets, uh, gets pulled through. Um, I think, uh, things have really changed in forensics since, since I started, uh, in the industry. So back in 2008 for me, which I know isn't that long ago, but, uh, coming up to 10 years now, um, I think back then hard drives were just a lot smaller. Um, you know, the, the, um, impact of mobile was, was also smaller and, uh, and things have just changed now where, uh, where the forensic examiner, um, you know, has a super important role, uh, but they need to involve uh, investigators in that in the work that they're doing. And when you hear about the kind of backlogs that some agencies have, um, you know, it's it just it just it's really tough when you've got someone submitting evidence and they, they know that they're not going to get anything back from you for a year. Um, you know, how how relevant or how valuable is that is that evidence at that point? Um, so. I, w- what I think um, is changing is that uh, a lot of examiners are starting to see that, you know, they their their skill set is is super valuable, and um, you know, being able to extract the data from the devices, being able to use all the different tools that you need to use to get all the all the data parsed out and um, into a format that that can be reviewed, um, you know, that that's really um, that's really a key part of the process, obviously. And then being able to share that with investigators who can help review the data, um, you know, uh, tag all the relevant items and, and uh, cooperate, collaborate with the, uh, the examiner to understand, hey, what does this record mean? Um, what, uh, um, is, this, is this indicating what I think it indicates? And, uh, you know, leveraging the, the technical experience of the examiner to, to understand that. But that, co- that collaboration, I think, is, is what, um, uh, what I'm really seeing change in, in the uh, in the forensic industry, and and uh, a lot of people are embracing that to to help you know reduce backlogs, um, create that trust again with uh, with their stakeholders that they can turn cases around quickly for them and get them the information they need, and then leveraging you know their skill set for the deep dive really difficult uh, cases and you know explaining all the results in court and, and all that kind of stuff um, but then also leveraging investigators to uh, to assist with uh, the review of you know sometimes millions of records in a case um, there's just so much more data these days larger hard drives multiple devices uh, different device types um, like internet of things and and uh, uh, things that aren't necessarily a computer 
or a, or a smartphone. Um, so just being able to, to keep up with all of that data, I think, is uh, is really important, and and that's that's the that's the change that I see there uh, compared to maybe ten years ago. And kind of along that thought, what what are some of the newer artifacts um, across any digital device that gets you most excited? I think uh, definitely the Internet of Things is uh, is an area that I'm really personally interested in. Um, they're not necessarily a a phone uh, or a computer, but they're 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 a mobile device in, in a way, and they're usually based on a uh, standard mobile platform like Android or some flavor of it. Um, and I think it's just a it's a new area that that um, maybe not not a lot of people are thinking about yet. And when you look at devices like the Amazon Echo, uh, Nest thermostats, Fitbits, um, OnStar uh, in your uh, in your vehicle, there's there's so much data that's being stored either on those devices or uh, on the apps that pair with those devices um, that you know a you know. Potentially, there's there's less security there. There's less encryption to deal with, um, and B maybe maybe just don't have the other devices to to get data from, and uh, you know the Amazon Echo stores the the searches that you've done. Um, there's recording voice recordings of the the queries that you've you've made to the Echo, um, uh, the the Nest uh, or sorry the Fitbit. Um, you know, tracks your steps taken, your your heartbeat at, at different uh, intervals, um, and it's all logged. Um, and and th these devices have already been um, come, uh, showing up in investigations. If if you uh, uh, do a few Google searches, you'll see where uh, Echoes have been involved in investigations. Fitbits have been used to either disprove uh, a claim or or prove a claim, um, and uh, and it's just it's be, it's becoming a um, you know, uh, I think a bigger part of uh, a potential ev evidence source for investigations. Um, but it's just a matter of knowing that you need to seize those devices and knowing how to get the data either from them or from the the apps that they that pair with them. Um, and I, if you look at some of the the uh, estimates of you know how many devices are going to be out there in the next few years, it's just it's in the it's in the billions and. Uh, you know, certainly some of them are consumer devices, and some of them are more uh, industrial. But it's just a new area and a new new device type that I think is is emerging and uh, um, kind of an exciting area to be looking at now. Yeah, it's, it's funny. I had um, I just recently got a new bed that has sleep tracker technology built into it, and I was thinking about <laughs> that too. It's crazy. They say for you know, it records up to two years of sleep sleep activity. Um, you can enter another information. It's got some personal information about it wants you to put in, uh, whether you want to be truthful or not about date of birth, uh, <laughs> height, weight, it's got some decent amount of PII characteristics and it then tracks your sleep for two years and it's on your, your home network. And there was only like one line about the security on it. It's like, basically, don't worry, it's secure. And I was like, well, I can make one a little bit more on that. So now I'm sure I'm going to annoy my wife by trying to hack the bed for the next two years. But <laughs> That's great. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and, and so do you have also have some concerns about these Internet of Things devices now that they're kind of propagating all over? And there was certainly the, the distributed denial of service attack that occurred last year with them. Do you think consumers are maybe adopting these without really thinking about all the risks that come into them? 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, depending on the brands that you buy or, or the types of devices, there's there's definitely some security risks. Um, and while there's data there that can assist us as forensic examiners and investigators, um, you know, there's certainly uh, um, you know an opportunity there for for bad people to to leverage these these devices as well. And and like you said, there's there's the um, the distributed de denial of service attack last year, um, and uh, you know everything that I read about it just you know indicates that these types of attacks will continue. The security level from the ma manufacturer just isn't uh, isn't you know very uh, uh, very complex, and it's 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 easy for for uh, attackers to get in and, and use those devices. So um, there's certainly two sides two sides to it and uh, it'll be interesting to see how how things develop and and where you know where things go with those devices um but in the meantime i think it's a it's a great source for uh for investigations and uh, uh for gathering additional data yeah and, and kind of with, with changes in technology too and where there's different things certainly the cloud has become the new thing uh, that everybody's looking at. There's decentralized storage, uh, infrastructure, software, where everything's kind of stored in the cloud. And do you think that is going to dramatically change the way that we do digital forensic investigations, or is it just something else we have to more adopt to? No, I, I think that's a great point. I think the cloud is certainly, um, uh, you know, a, a growing area as well. And uh, the difficulty with the cloud is some of, is with some of the legislative or legal considerations where, you know, maybe you have access to the cloud, um, but does that does that legally give you um, authority to uh, to collect data from the cloud? And that that adds a bit of a twist to. Uh, um, to the you know kind of the technical work that needs to be done to be able to collect data, uh, I think that part's actually the the fairly easy um, piece of of the you know cloud cloud forensics or, or data collection from the cloud. It's more dealing with all the different countries and, and their approach to what what's allowed and what's not allowed um, when it comes to uh, to getting data from the cloud. So I think it's a it's it's a it's a big area for sure. Um, if you look at some of the uh, IoT devices out there, they uh, certainly storing some data on the device themselves and some data on the smartphone app. But a lot of that data is um, going to be found in the cloud as well. And uh, the Amazon Echo is another good example. Again, um, those recordings that it makes of when you ask it to uh, add something to your shopping list or uh, uh, search something on Google for you, those recordings are being stored in the cloud. Um, and if you have access to the person's account, um, uh, their Amazon account, you can actually download all of those uh, all of those recordings. Um, so it's certainly an area of consideration for us and, and I think for everyone involved in, in the industry. Um, and as encryption becomes um, more and more prevalent on the smartphone side or other device, uh, other devices, um, I can't help but think that we're going to be looking more to the cloud uh, to, to get, um, get the evidence that we need, especially if we're getting locked out of other um, more traditional data sources. Yeah, I think th we're certainly seeing that uh, with, with some more of the high-profile cases involving iOS, where you know you can try to get the cloud backups, but then there's layers of encryptions and passwords with that as, as well. That certainly pose some Brilliant. interesting challenges. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. And you know, yeah. kind of going back to you know, you said back and look at the industry as a whole. 
Um, you know, what, what are some of the skills that you think, you know, outside of tools, what are some of the skills you think that a, that makes a good digital forensic examiner? Um, I think, uh, you know, that thirst for, for knowledge, um, and to always be learning is, is super important. Um, that, that curiosity and wanting to understand how things work and, and how, uh, um, kind of the, the underpinnings of, of the different, uh, types of data that you're looking at. Um, just, just having that, that thirst for knowledge, uh, things change so quickly in our industry. Um, and that's, uh, you can either kind of look at that in, in an exciting way or, uh, kind of a, um, kind of a dreadful way. Um, and I think people that do really well in this industry are, you know, they're, they're, they're interested in the technology. They, uh, they, they're interested in the investigation side of things and they, they want to be able to figure out these, these different challenges they, and stay, stay up to date with uh, um, the, the developments and, and the trends that, are, um, that we're seeing uh, change in technology. Um, I think if, if, you, if you can do that and, and uh, you're passionate about the work, um, uh, you can do, do really, really good things um, and, uh, and stay on top of it all. And looking at the tools again, if you had to pick one tool that's not yours, uh, what tool would you pick and why? Oh wow, that's a that's a tough one. Uh, are we talking about any any forensic tool any or forensic tool or security tool? Yeah. Hmm. That is a good question. You know, one that one that I've been really excited about lately, um, and this is again coming back to the kind of the trial exploitation world is uh, is Griffi's uh, Analyze DI tool, um, and and they've they've done a great thing by giving that away for free to uh, folks that are doing um, investigations involving child exploitation, but it's also a great tool for folks that are um, just doing any investigation that involves uh, uh, pictures and videos. Um, and it's it's just a really, really good tool for, for being able to analyze that data and bring it down um, to the, the important bits, which is kind of what we try to do with our tools, um, even though they're generally more looking at the text-based data. Um, you know the the volume of video and and pictures that you sometimes have to go through is uh, it can just take weeks and weeks to or months to get through it and and uh, I've just been really uh, really impressed with what they've been able to do there and and uh, how they're able to to make the the jobs of the investigators um, a lot easier and, and save them time um, through the through the analysis capabilities that they've uh, they've built in. Yep, it's it's you know I think with. A lot of people, as we've talked about, kind of coming in the fields, understand the tools will will help you save time. They're not going to necessarily do that find evidence button for you. You still need to, exactly. you, know, you still need the what works behind it. But uh, yep. yeah, it's just the the amount of the amount of information you have to parse through these days is is a lot. So, yeah, it's yeah. <laughs> very true. Well, I you know as we wrap up here, I really greatly appreciate the time. But uh, where can people find you these days? Where where they you know um, can find your blog and other things that you're doing on off uh, your website? Um, yeah, our website's magnetforensics.com, uh, and uh, you can find me on LinkedIn or, or Twitter, uh, Jad at Magnet uh, on Twitter. Um, always happy to to talk to folks, uh, get feedback, good or bad. We you know we just want to get better um, and uh, provide uh, you know better, better software and solutions for folks. Um, and I'm always really interested in staying in touch with people that are 
you know, still in the trenches doing the work. Um, I think that's, uh, it's just, like I said, whatever kind of investigations you're doing, um, you know, my hat's off to you. It's, it's, it's a tough job. Um, but it's, uh, I think it's, it's, it's fun work as well. And, uh, you're able to, to make a real difference in a lot of different people's lives through the work that you're doing. So, um, love to hear stories from folks on, on how, uh, you know, they, they solve tough cases and especially if our software is able to help, uh, even better. And, uh, uh, we're just, uh, we're just really honored to be able to, to serve all the people that, uh, um, that use our, our products. Well, great. I'll make sure I put all those links in the show notes, but I greatly appreciate Appreciate you taking the time today, Jad, and I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks again for uh, thanks again for having me on uh, uh, on this, Douglas. It was great to talk to you. Great, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today on Cybersecurity Interviews. I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Please go to cybersecurityinterviews.com where you can find every episode, including show notes and links for each guest. There you can also find social media links and to sign up for new episode notifications. Thanks. We'll talk soon.